Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the usual place, the wonderful office of my company, Amatix Technologies, where we use machine learning and artificial intelligence to empower people and organizations. Today I'm with uh, David Kopek, author of the classic computer science problems in Python, a book published by Manning Publications. His book deepens your knowledge of problem-solving techniques from the realm of computer science by challenging you with really interesting and realistic scenarios, exercises, and of course, a lot of algorithms. There are examples in the major topics that I believe that any data scientist should be familiar with. For example, search, clustering, graphs, and much more. So let me introduce you, David. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, Francesco. Thanks so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure indeed. Now, David, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners of Data Science at Home podcast? Sure. I'm an assistant professor at Champlain College in beautiful Burlington, Vermont, in the United States. I've worked as a software developer before becoming a professor, and I'm the author of the book Start for Absolute Beginners, Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift, and most recently, Classic Computer Science Problems in Python, the topic of our episode today. Pretty good stuff. The book is pretty complete series of chapters of the topics that are probably most used in everyday computing, not just machine learning or artificial intelligence, starting from search problems to constraint satisfaction. Then there's also a lot of graph theory, clustering, etc. So let me ask you, who's this book for exactly? Well, I'd say there's really three audiences. The first audience is self-taught programmers. So these would be people who may not have a formal computer science education, but maybe working in the industry as a software developer, or perhaps they're just a hobbyist programmer, or perhaps they're even a different domain, like they work in uh, bioinformatics, but they don't have a CS education. And they want to fill in those gaps. They want to fill in the uh, knowledge and algorithms and general computer science problem-solving techniques that they never formally received. So that's probably the most prominent audience and that's our most common reader. Um, the second is professionals who do have a CS education but are looking to brush up on some of the topics covered in the book. Maybe it's been a while since, since they learned about them or perhaps they're preparing for interviews, the dreaded whiteboard interview and things like that. Um, and then lastly would be students. So we have people who are currently enrolled in a computer science program and they want a more maybe tutorial-like, hands-on introduction to some of the topics that they're learning about. And this book is a very applied book. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of, it doesn't have a lot of math and theory in it compared to a lot of other books in this domain. So maybe they like that more gentle introduction. <laughs> For sure. I've read the book and indeed there is a lot of, uh, of Python, there is a lot of, you know, exercises, a lot of hands-on, I must say. And uh, definitely that would attract, you know, the student who wants to start without getting, you know, impressed or, or actually doesn't want to have nightmares about <laughs> constraint satisfaction problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> my question is, why, why did you choose Python as the main language of the book? Well, we wrote the first book in the series in Swift. So that came out in 2018. It was called Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift. And it did pretty well. Uh, but the publisher came to me and they said, you know, we think it's a, it's a good book. We think it should reach a wider audience. And what we wanted to do is if we ported the book, so to speak, to Python, 
we wanted to really make sure it was really Pythonic using the latest technologies in Python 3.7, making sure that we have a team in place, including technical reviewer, technical editor that are really Python experts. I love Python myself. I've been working in it since I was in graduate school about 10 years ago. And so we wanted to take the, the best things about the Swift book, but make them into a book that would be accessible to more people because Python is obviously a much more popular language, but at the same time, make it using the latest in the Python world as well. Um, so Python, I think, is used a lot by our core audience. So self-taught programmers who didn't necessarily have a CS education are often working in Python. So I think the book is very applicable to a lot of Python programmers. For sure. And a lot of data scientists that I know of use Python as, you know, the go-to language for, for machine learning, for example. Now, uh, of course, I am, uh, I also love a lot of languages. I've been personally using a lot of other languages than, than just Python. What do you think about all these other languages for education and for also real world problems? And I'm mentioning, you know, the usual C, C++, Java, but also Golang, Rask, Haskell. What do you think of that? Well, I'll, I'll address it in two parts. I'll start with education. So in education, um, we've seen a move towards Python the last 20 years. In the late 90s and early 00s, Java was kind of taking over the education space. A lot of people were moving away from C and C++ to teaching their CS programs in Java. And then in the last decade, we've seen a lot of colleges move from, from Java to Python. Actually, I saw a graph recently of the top 40 CS programs in the United States, and about half of them are, are now using Python. Uh, a lot of the rest are using Java, and there's only a few still using C or C++. I think the reason for that is that Python is a more approachable language for beginners. I think Java was a more approachable language for beginners than C or C++ was, and I think Python is even more approachable than Java is. So when you're starting out, if you want somebody to get up to speed quickly, uh, you want a language that looks almost like the pseudocode they're going to see in their textbook. You want a language that has a really rich standard library so that they're going to be able to do a lot out of the box. You want a language that is um, easy to write and concise so that uh, they, they're not feeling like it's a burden to write those first programs. So I think that for all those reasons, Python is a great language for education. Um, and I, I'm not surprised that a lot of programs in the United States and in our universities have been moving to it. Now, in the wider world, of course, it's a multi-language world. Python just doesn't have performance characteristics that make it suitable for a lot of applications. So I don't think Python's ever going to be the one language that everyone uses. I myself am very much about a polyglot world. I, I work on, you know, every couple of days I'm switching between working on an app in Swift or working on a uh, data science project in Python or working on a um, uh, something like an emulator just for fun in C or C++. So I, I think that there's no one language right now that can really rule them all. I think we need to use the right language for the right domain. And I think in education, Python is the right language for introductory programming. Hmm. I agree with you, and especially you know, more specifically to machine learning and artificial intelligence, we have seen Python dominating in the last yeah. few years. For sure, with a lot, a lot of a lot of nice libraries as well, save a lot of time. But I assume there is a side effect, which is you know Python hiding a lot of the programming complexity behind these beautiful libraries. 
But do you think there's the risk that the modern student cannot grasp certain problems that, you know, other students from the past had to deal with? Let me give an example. When I was a student, and unfortunately that was a long time ago, um, I had to deal with, you know, memory allocation when I studied uh, operating systems or even implementing graph algorithms from scratch when it was about uh, graph theory. Mm -hmm. What happens to the modern student, the modern student when uh, is forced, he or she is forced to use a language with a lot of very nice libraries? Yeah, I do think you're right that as we get further and further away from the metal, so to speak, there's this risk of no longer understanding the whole stack and really understanding what's going on at a lower level. And so I think a good CS program can't just be in Python. I think it has to be both in Python and also there has to be classes in lower level languages like C and C++. At our school, and I think at most schools still, there's, there's a computer architecture class where students actually program in assembly. I think understanding those low level bits gives you a better understanding of some of the performance characteristics even when you're working in a high level language. And so I think it's really important for a full CS education to include a class in C and C++, a class in assembly. That being said, though, I'd go back to what we talked about earlier, which is maybe you don't want to have that be the first class, though. Maybe the first class and the second class should be more here. Let's understand uh, what a variable is. Let's understand what a loop is. Let's understand what a class is. Uh, and then let's worry about the low-level bits when we get a little bit more advanced, because otherwise you lose people sometimes. If you start with the with the lowest levels, you lose people. But I totally agree with you that the fact that when we work in Python, we're often working in high-level libraries that are hiding a lot of complexity from us. You get this danger of not actually understanding what's going on under the surface. And that's why I think if you're only a Python programmer, it's worth your time to, to spend some time learning C or C++ to understand uh, actually how Python itself is implemented and what's really going on behind the scenes. And if, of course, if you need to write performance critical code, you can't write it in Python alone, um, unless you're using a library like NumPy that, by the way, is implemented mostly in C uh, and is doing a lot of that, that fast computational work for us behind the scenes. Totally agree. Now, back to the book, David, uh, do you provide real-world applications for each of the topics that you touch on in, in your book? Can, can you give us some examples? And, of course, if you want to expand on each, please feel free. Sure. So, at the end of every chapter, we have a section called Real-World Applications that kind of takes the problem-solving technique you learned in that chapter and how it might be used in actual software development. Because, you know, just like any book on algorithms, we end up dealing in a lot of what people might call toy problems. The reason for that is we need the problems to be small enough that you can really learn them within a single chapter and keep them in your mind as we're going through the algorithm to solve them. So we don't want to give you something that's daunting on top of learning this new problem-solving technique. So we do deal in a lot of toy problems, but then at the end we want to bring that back to how these algorithms and problem-solving techniques might be applicable to a project you're actually working on for your company or, or for your hobby. Um, so I'll give you a few examples. In the second chapter, we deal with the A-star algorithm, which is a search algorithm. 
And, you know, the A-star algorithm is used all the time in game development for path planning. So if you have a character, let's say, in an RPG and they need to get from one part of the map to another part of the map, oftentimes it'll be the A-star algorithm that does that. In the third chapter, we talk about constraint satisfaction problems, and that can sound kind of esoteric, and you're kind of like, how would I really use this? But scheduling applications, things like Google Calendar, um, use constraint satisfaction problems all the time to figure out, okay, these two people need to come to this meeting. Uh, this third person sh maybe should be at the meeting, and these are the times when they're all available. Uh, so all the time in scheduling problems, constraint satisfaction problems are used, problem-solving techniques are used. Graph algorithms, chapter four, those are about networks. So we have nodes, we have edges between those nodes, and we have algorithms that find shortest paths from one node to another. We have algorithms that find the least amount of edge weight that we need, so let's say lengths of edges that we need to connect the network. Well, you know, networks are everywhere. If you're a civil engineer and you're planning an electrical grid, um, that's a network. If you're a networking engineer for an IT firm and you're laying out cables around a building, um, that's a network problem. If you're somebody who's building a new transportation system, that's a network problem. Network problems actually come up all the time. And these graph algorithm problem-solving techniques we learned in Chapter 4 are actually applicable to a wide variety of different network problems. And then later in the book, we get into some more machine learning-like algorithms. And um, those are, of course, very hot right now. And uh, there's so many different applications for them. But a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of applications for them in business. Maybe you're working in marketing. And you have a lot of data about your um, your clients, for and you want to maybe somehow uh, turn that into different categories of clients. Using a clustering algorithm like K-Means might help you get some insights about where these different clusters of your customers exist. So there's actually applications for a lot of these in spheres that aren't just pure theoretical computer science. There's often areas we can use some of the problem-solving techniques in the book that I think will pop out to people as they read the book, and they'll realize, you know, I actually have something that's relevant to this technique. I've heard about that already from readers of the book that, for example, I heard about somebody who was working on a scheduling problem, and the constraint satisfaction chapter really helped them. So I think people will find some surprising synergies with what their day-to-day uh, -day job or hobby is. Yeah, I mean, uh, this the, the concepts that you touch in your book is are pretty generic in the sense that they are applicable everywhere around around us. And uh, and yep. but you know, staying close to the machine learning and data science world, I would say that indeed you just mentioned K-means. Um, I've read some chapters, of course, um, about your book. But do you also mention neural networks or other like, for example, genetic algorithms, all this kind of stuff? Yes. Uh, so we have a chapter on genetic algorithms. It's chapter five in the book. Now, genetic algorithms are a technique that is not applicable for your day-to-day -day problem. It's really useful when you have a problem that no other technique has worked well for. So they're, they're kind of an algorithm of last resort or algorithmic technique of last resort. Uh, so it's an interesting one. I'd say the more, the more directly, immediately useful chapters are k-means clustering in chapter six, Anytime you have a bunch of data and you don't really clearly see where those clusters are, running the k-means algorithm through that data may show you some groupings that you didn't even think of. It's a um, machine learning technique 
that uh, we call unsupervised mm -hmm. learning because we don't ahead of time know where, what we're shooting for. And so sometimes that can actually bring some insights that you never thought were there. Now, in Chapter 7, we cover neural networks, and of course, that's a huge topic. I mean, that, that is – so we don't, of course, do it justice in a single chapter. Our goal is to make the introduction to neural networks as approachable as possible. So you'll see a lot of tutorials online that'll be like either here's how to use TensorFlow, or you'll see other tutorials online that are like here's how we're going to build a neural network with NumPy in 10 lines mm -hmm. of code. And it's going to do hardly anything, but it's going to be 10 lines of code. I wanted to strike a medium somewhere between the two. So I want to show you how everything works from scratch. So we don't use any external libraries beyond the Python standard library right. in that chapter. So we really wanted to, to show you everything on a, in a step-by-step -step basis. So there's no magic behind the scenes. Exactly. On the other hand, we didn't want to do one of these super simple problems that the 10 lines of code solves, like... Uh, trying to model, you know, a sine equation or um, just turn um, something that always turns a zero into a one. Um, we wanted to do something a little more sophisticated than that, so we actually do classification problems. It was the hardest chapter to write because we also wanted to make it approachable to people with a very limited mathematical background. What do I mean by limited? Um, I mean that we wanted to minimize the amount of calcul let's say math beyond high school that you would need to really understand how back propagation works and did we completely succeed well i'll leave that to the readers to decide but um it it definitely i think is strikes a good medium between doing everything from scratch but still doing problems that are significant enough that you feel like your neural network is really doing something significant by the end of the chapter. So the two problems we do, we do classifying irises, the classic iris data set, and we do classifying wines. So you have a bunch of different uh, wine characteristics, which wine, uh, which grape is, is this wine from? So th those are, you know, th those are significant problems. They're not huge problems. They'd be very easy to do in TensorFlow, but you're going to see how to do them from scratch, starting from nothing um, in just one chapter. So I think that's that's interesting to, to certain people getting into neural Absolutely. networks. Absolutely. I think it's a very good approach, in fact, because, you know, you, in fact, you are forcing the student to learn the, the nuts and bolts of how these methods work. And then, of course, they are still free to use the, you know, more complex libraries, maybe production-ready code, like TensorFlow and other things. But at least they know what they are using the day they start using something like, you know, as complex as TensorFlow or Keras or whatever. Absolutely. I think a lot of people jump into TensorFlow or Keras and they don't really understand even what a neuron really is or what backpropagation really is. Yeah. And it's more, they're just seeing all the magic and, and they get excited, rightly so. Absolutely. <laughs> it is exciting. And you that want, is, you want to jump in. True. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there, there's, you sh I think you should understand what's going on behind the scenes. And that's kind of one of the themes of the whole book. The whole book is about, well, you know, I don't think you're going to go implement a graph library from scratch. You're probably going to go find one on PyPI. Py uh, you're probably going to go find one on GitHub. But you should kind of know how it works behind the exactly. scenes. Exactly. Right? Yes. And so we're not saying 
that you should do maybe any of these techniques from scratch that are in the book. You should absolutely use a library. But how do you know which technique to choose if you don't really know how they all work? So for example, should you be using a genetic algorithm to serve a cer certain problem or should you be using a traditional search algorithm? Which one makes more sense? Well, if you don't know how either of them works, it's going to be very hard for you to make that decision. So we just want to expose you to these different problem-solving techniques so that you're a more informed software developer. It's not necessarily that we expect that you're going to go implement all of them from scratch in the future. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, let me tell you a story of what happened in my career. Uh, it's not. It, it's because I think that's kind of. I, I kind of see this happening over and over. Now, coming from the world of research and you know exact algorithms, whenever applicable, of course, I slowly in the years migrated towards you know so-called data-driven solutions. Right? Why was that? Because of course we had more data, we had GPUs, we had you know more new additional methods that could handle such amounts of data, etc., etc. Now, of course, this approach has changed the way I look at problems now, you know, because in the past it was very common to start from the problem and then from the algorithm, write down the algorithm, the computational complexity on, on, on paper, on a whiteboard. While today I see a lot of practitioners, as you already mentioned, probably starting from the data, throwing the data to, to, the, to the network, to whatever model they probably downloaded from the web, and, and that's how they, you know, and of course, getting excited, as you said. Now, this is a big shift in education, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing is the way that the colleges are adapting and universities is starting to add programs that are specifically in what's called data analytics or data science. If you were applying to college 10 years ago and you wanted to work in this kind of field, you would probably go into computer science or you might go into math. But now we're seeing more and more majors and master's programs and even PhDs in data science and data analytics. And I think that shift is going to continue as we move forward because some of these techniques are so specialized that there's not necessarily a place for them in a general CS education. And so I think we need more training now that all these uh, techniques exist and all these tools exist than we did 10 years ago. And so... I think what we've seen in education is more specialized degrees. So do you think this might have repercussions in the way new students solve problems today? Well, I think what we need to do is make sure that people who are studying data analytics or data science still have a background in computer science as well. So they, they should still have take some fundamental classes in things like data structures and algorithms to make sure that they understand, again, like we've been talking about this whole episode, the, the background and what's happening underneath these techniques they're using to solve the problems. At the same time, I think it's healthy that computer science students are also taking classes in machine learning, in data mining, in artificial intelligence that are going to give them a broader perspective so that they know some of these very specialized and advanced techniques are available to them as they become software developers. So I, I think there needs to be a cross-pollination between this new discipline of data science and data analytics and traditional computer science programs. David, let me switch the conversation a bit towards the, the deep learning side of things <laughs> because deep learning is on the hype. Uh, it doesn't seem to go down anytime soon. Um, it's covering many of the domains that we were used to, to deal with traditional algorithms or what we can call classic algorithms. Now, what do you think about deep learning reaching state-of-the-art performance in, in several domains? Think about speech recognition, computer vision, uh, healthcare, and I can go on and on. 
even those where traditional algorithms played a very important role so far. Now, do you think that the deep learning approach will change the way people solve problems completely? I think it already has. So we see this, like you mentioned, in, in several different domains where people for a long time were trying to come up with very exact traditional algorithms to solve a problem. And they sort of kind of worked, uh, but they weren't. They don't work as well as current deep learning techniques do. And so there is this, uh, I guess, current trend of reaching for deep learning as a first technique uh, before you've maybe thought about uh, coming up with a more traditional algorithm to solve a problem. And I think the reason that's happening is because it works so well. I mean, we're seeing such incredible advances through deep learning techniques. So I don't think that the trend is going to change as long as we keep seeing such incredible um, problems being solved. On the other hand, I'll just say it again, and now it sounds like a little bit of a broken record, but I think people should still understand traditional data structures and algorithms because there is a point where you reach a limit with what even deep learning can do. And so it's important to have those tools at your disposal so that you can still come up with new original algorithms beyond just um, applying deep learning to, to every problem. I, I, think, I think there are some areas where sometimes people reach for a deep learning technique when it wasn't completely necessary, for example. Uh, sometimes people will use deep learning for classification problems in particular, and they could have used something like um, even a linear regression because it's really not that complicated a problem that they're trying to solve. And so it's overkill. And maybe they're not actually getting as uh, good a result as they could have gotten with an actually simpler technique. So I, I do think people should still be aware of alternatives. But of course, the, the trend is, is towards deep learning and, and it's really exciting what we've seen. So to cut the long story short, do deep learning, but also do your homework. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> Makes sense. David, let me ask the usual philosophical question I ask at the end of each episode, which is this. Where do you see machine learning and algorithms going in the next five to 10 years? Not that far in the future, next five to 10 years. Any prediction you would like to take a risk on? <laughs> well, you know, I think it's a little above my pay grade to make such a broad prediction. But what I will say is in education, I think we're going to see more of these specialized programs. So I think we're going to see a growth of more data science programs, more data analytics programs. I think we're going to see more graduate degrees, uh, in, specifically in machine learning. Um, and I think that this is pretty much an unstoppable trend. I think there, I, I don't think that we're going to hit another AI winter as they had in, in previous decades. I think because when they hit those AI winters in the past, uh, and I wasn't around for them, so I, I more have read about them in the books. Um, but when people hit those AI winters, it's because there was all this hype, but then problems weren't really being solved. But right now, problems actually are being solved. We actually do have um, incredible translation abilities. We have incredible text-to-speech and speech-to-text. We have incredible image recognition capabilities. All these problems that we were promised would be solved in the past actually are being solved now. And so I don't think there's going to be, I think there is a bit of hype right now. And I think maybe there's a little bit of a bubble, but I don't think it's going to be uh, some kind of drastic disaster like it was for AI in the, in the eighties. 
Um, so I think it's going to continue to grow. And I think in education specifically, we're going to see more and more specialized degree programs because I think a general CS education has to cover so much already that it doesn't get enough into the type of techniques that people really need to be state of the art today. What you say as makes a lot of sense, even though there are, of course, diverging opinions on the topic. There are some folks out there who, who mentioned already a second winter for AI. I, I don't know, to be honest with you, um, what's going to happen. But, you know, your opinion, of course, is very valuable. And uh, yeah, I believe so. <laughs> I believe it's going to happen. David, it was very nice to have you on the show. Of course, we will report some of your contacts, uh, Twitter, GitHub on the show notes of this episode. And uh, also, I would like to mention that there will be a coupon code still in the show notes so that, you know, whoever wants to purchase your book can get a nice discount, which is always good to have. Well, Francesco, I want to thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure to be on the show. Likewise. Take care. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.